Hi, welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm Paul Jay. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. There's a segment in the Showtime series, The Reagans, about dog whistling or Reagans pandering to racism without using overtly racist words. Again, it's impossible not to see the model for Trump in all this. Let us pledge to each other, with this great lady looking on, that we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. Thank you very much. Reagan's reputation as a dog whistler has not had a sufficiently negative impact on his legacy. Dog whistling is all about plausible deniability that allowed Reagan to protect himself and that has allowed the Republican Party for the last four decades to deny that that's who Ronald Reagan was, to turn him into a hero, to insist that he really did care about the average American working family. But when people stand back, they see that in fact, Reagan was a divisive figure someone willing to do what he knew was wrong, to divide Americans as a way to win power. Reagan's genius as a politician was that he wrapped his racism in a facade of fatherly love. Now joining us is the director and writer of The Reagans, Matt Trinauer, who's also the filmmaker of Valentino, The Last Emperor, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, and Where's My Roy Cohn, another must-see if you want to understand the political forces that gave us Trump. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you. So talk about the evolution of Reagan. We, we talked about from FDR-ish, liberal-ish head of a union to a Goldwater, uh, pro-Goldwater politician who then becomes Goldwater-ish politician himself, um, but also this uh, arc to adopting uh, as a tactic, really, uh, this dog whistle res racism. Uh, so how does that, that develop? And tell us the story. Well, Reagan was on trend because uh, after the Second World War, leading into the Johnson and civil rights era, uh, the use of overt racist language really was not going to be permissible in the public arena. So clever politicians figured out that uh, you could use encoded language and have the same effect. And this eventually became labeled as dog whistle racism. So uh, Goldwater, I think, practiced it, but I think Reagan really elevated it to uh, an art form and uh, was the master of the form. The question of whether my father was racist is a troubling one for me. There was a concerted effort to undermine the civil rights movement. A new language developed to trigger unacceptable social hatreds. Our city streets are jungle paths. Reagan can turn around and say, me? I didn't say anything about race. He, a lot of this he wrote himself. He was very good at coming up with little bumper sticker phrases that stuck in your mind. So uh, some of his classics were uh, Welfare Queen, uh, which he based on a real character named Linda Taylor, 
there was recently a book, sort of a biography of Linda Taylor. Um, she wasn't really deserving of the moniker Welfare Queen. She was uh, kind of like a check kiter and a, a serial petty criminal. criminal. She might have stolen a, a social security check or two, I, I can't remember, but he, uh, she was written about in the press and he would take, clip these newspaper articles and he incorporated her into her into his banter and into his speeches and he referred to her as the welfare queen and that really stuck. He saw it was sticking, he saw it got a good response. He was very good at reading a crowd, of course. Uh, another uh, dog whistle phrase that Reagan was famous for is young bucks. He referred to in the wake of the, the Watts uprising when he was running for governor 65, 66, he's elected in 66, Watts uprising was 65. So it was really uh, in the political consciousness of the state of California. He gave a speech, I think it was even his announcement for uh, getting into the gubernatorial race. He was talking about our cities have become jungle paths Again, another obvious dog whistle. I, I don't think I need to define dog whistle for your listeners, but in case anyone needs a refresher, uh, it's something that's plausibly deniable, but will uh, resonate for people who are prone to belief in whatever you're trying to dog whistle and usually deployed for um, racist purposes in order to leverage uh, racist voters to follow you. Uh, he, he was uh, persistent in this too. It's really not remembered. I, he, he gave another speech where he's talking about the jungle closing in on us. We had civilized this little patch of land, but now the jungle's closing in. Today, these of course sound like foghorns, then they pass for dog whistles. Uh, one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize, the whole second part of this series really is about Reagan and racialist language and dog whistles is that Reagan was uh, guilty of this and a lot of it was kind of cleansed from his record and it really doesn't stand in the public memory. One thing he is somewhat remembered for is his 1980 campaign slogan uh, which should sound familiar to uh, your audience which was let's make America great again. Uh, this plagiarized by Trump he cuts off the, the first word. Uh, that, in a way, is a dog whistle, too, I think. Uh, and I think it, Trump used it that way as well. So what, what America are we trying to get back to is the question. And this goes to pure Reagan. Uh, in people's minds and imaginations, uh, frequently, I think the America that we have to get back to is that pre-complicated America, pre-civil rights America, pre-Black President America. Pre-New pre, pre Deal America. Pre-New Deal America. All these things get bundled together. But uh, for Reagan, I think it always goes back to the Andy Hardy movies and that type of white picket fence, uh, whitewashed, if you will, American narrative that Hollywood was uh, brilliant at, uh, at producing. And he was the principal player in many of those stories. And uh, you just always have to remember that Reagan believed these narratives. He really believed it. So it's very hard to, in certain ways, get at a sale or find the chink in the armor 
for someone who has an almost sociopathic belief in uh, untruths or uh, fictions. And Reagan was a master at uh, weaving political fictions. He found an audience for them. And as I said, he was very good at, at judging an audience when he was in front of them. He had a trick, a performer's trick, which was, uh, I was very nearsighted, very bad eyesight. They never wore glasses in public, uh, but he, he wore contact lenses. But when he gave a speech, he wore only one contact lens. So he could read the text with one eye, but he could focus on a member of the audience with another eye. And he would speak to that particular person. Anyone who's done any public speaking, it, it is very handy to find someone in the audience who's sympathetically nodding or whose expressions seem to be following what you're saying and they become the barometer for you. And clearly he knew what he was doing and he followed that trick. So again, you know, the man wasn't completely stupid. He had enormously cultivated intelligence in certain areas, but as his own son in the interview in the series says, he knew what he knew. And if anything fell outside of his belief system, uh, he would dismiss it. And it was almost impossible for him to take on board new information and process it and uh, make it a, a, a part of his belief system that was uh, at all contradictory to the main thrust of what he believed. And I, I, they must have seen uh, a big political opportunity uh, you know, towards the end of the World War II, uh, when the Southern Democrats wanted to get rid of Wallace, the vice president, um, even Roosevelt wouldn't buck them. He, he went along with it, and they dumped Wallace, who actually makes Sanders look centrist. It was a, a quite a, kind of remarkable uh, how liberal, if you want to use the words, Wallace was to be vice president. Um, he gets dumped uh, under the pressure of the Southern Democrats. Um, but then with the rise of the Civil Rights Movement, the Democratic Party really has to, is forced to take a stand in a way. And the Kennedys and, and then Johnson, they do, you know, within certain limits, side with the Civil Rights Movement, which creates fertile ground for exactly this move by Reagan to try to steal these votes away from uh, the Democratic Party. And this gives rise to another one of his uh, bumper stickers or aphorisms that is also a dog whistle, which is, uh, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me, which takes a little bit of unpacking. That, I think, would still qualify as a dog whistle because you have to know something about the history that you just outlined. Uh, Johnson famously says, after he signs the Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, we've lost the South for two generations. Uh, as people have pointed out now, it was wrong. It was much more than two generations. Uh, what Reagan's saying there is, uh, you know, I was a part of this Democratic Party and part of that coalition was racist Southern uh, politicians. And those people are being purged from the party or uncomfortable in this party that has embraced civil rights anymore. So my party left me. He said that all the time. He said it uh, quite late, I, I, you know, into the late 70s, at least. Um, and uh, it was, um, it worked for him. Uh, and I think, you know, there was a moment when Obama um, was, I think, get, heading into the midterms of, uh, of his first term and Obamacare was kind of, had been passed but hadn't taken hold. And there were these 
news clips. Uh, I remember a woman on being interviewed and she was absolutely hysterical saying, I want my country back. I want my country back. And it took me a few seconds of what she's saying, why is she so upset? And uh, it was just that that intolerance of a country of inclusion and uh, a politics cleansed of racism and racist rhetoric and uh, was is intolerable. Certain people, Trump saw that. And I think that was the er, that was the Tea Party emerging, of course, and those were the er Trump voters. And I think it's important that when you talk about Reagan's anti-government uh, program, and you know, government's the problem, not the solution, it's the problem and all that. The, the truth is it wasn't, he was never really about, really about smaller government because he was all about increasing the military industrial complex and the Pentagon and the armed forces, which is more and more government. But it was also a kind of dog whistle. The government they wanted to go after was the government that had any New Deal elements, that had social programs, that had food stamps, that, and again, all wrapped up in really what is amounts to racism because the image of who got these programs were supposed to be blacks. Truth is, it was white poor that actually got way more than blacks ever did, but that isn't the image they created. Yes, uh, well, his narratives were very powerful and he persistently wove them and he's you know he was giving radio speeches all the time he, he understood the power of radio having been a radio star that's how he launched his career and he would write these little radio addresses that were kind of like occasionally racist homilies uh, in the in cloaked in anti-government rhetoric basically so one of the anecdotes he tells is about this so-called young buck who uh made people in the supermarket, check, supermarket checkout line irate, irate because he was buying a T-bone steak with food stamps. And the housewives in line behind him who were buying hamburger with their hard-earned dollar, hard dollars were very upset by this. Well, I mean, uh, all of this is of course uh, apocryphal and uh, really pushed the right buttons. But that's the narrative. That's a way of getting at the narrative Social programs add on to that civil rights legislation and new layers of social programs. So when he says that government is not the solution, government is the problem, or the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, he's getting into people's heads that way. And again, he won on this consistently. Um, and I think one thing that uh, the uh, law professor uh, Ian Haney Lopez at Berkeley, who's uh, in the series, he wrote a book called Dog Whistle Racism, points out is that one thing Reagan was uh, quick to understand was that this appeal to racist voters and deployment of dog whistle uh, racism in your rhetoric wasn't just for the South. There were enough voters who were inclined to respond to dog whistle racist rhetoric spread out around the country that you could add them to your coalition in states outside of the South and have great success. And indeed in California, which was kind of like still Nixon's and then Reagan's California quite a bit in the sixties and seventies, but still it was a, you know, had a huge liberal coalition in California at the time, but Reagan was able to unseat a new deal governor, Pat Brown, the father of uh, governor, the recent governor, Jerry Brown, 
who was a very much a Roosevelt Democrat. And that's how race, uh, that's how Reagan really kind of launched by uh, toppling Pat Brown. Uh, I remember Barack Obama was asked at one time, you know, how do you see your foreign policy? How do you root it in the context of uh, the history of American foreign policy. And he talked about how he, he saw himself in the tradition of uh, Truman, Eisenhower, Reagan. And, and there's something I thought crazy. Uh, maybe it's not so crazy because maybe it's part of Obama's tactic is to make sure he's accepted by the center and the center right because more or less his politics were center, center, at least center, but but for a black president to uh, and of course other Democrats when Reagan died, I mean, leading Democrats were tripping over each other to sing his praises, and this and certainly this piece about how racist Reagan was was completely covered over. I don't remember any mainstream media even mentioning it. Yeah, uh, this is one reason I wanted to make the series. I feel you know Clinton, Bill Clinton did this as well. It was a kind of it was called triangulation in the '90s, a very chic political tactic. Uh, but it was, well, we can't beat them. Let's beat them at their own game and kind of like get on their turf. I mean, politically real in terms of real politic, it was, it was successful. And the only thing that matters in politics is winning, which brings us to what I think after searching for a while to find how so many very bright left wing or center left people, uh, have given Reagan this huge pass. Uh, I think the way it probably is commonly justified is that um, you have to look at how people govern, not how they campaign. Now, this is a much better excuse for someone like George H.W. Bush, who engaged in racist politicking. The Willie Horton ad is most famous, but there were other sins along the way. And he really didn't get his hands dirty in um, kind of defunding big government as a, as a religion in the way Reagan did. He was about other things. He saw himself more as like a foreign policy president, et cetera, and sort of that statesman. So there's a huge cult of H.W. Bush, which excuses Willie Horton as, oh, well, he, he just had to win and Roger Ailes told him to do that. And he just kind of nodded and then it happened. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. For me, that doesn't really carry. Um, but I think a little of that transfers onto Reagan. And uh, the reason that Republicans... Uh, kind of like non-Trump Republicans, whomever they may be at this point, still cling to Reagan is that he, he knew how to win and uh, he knew how to cover his tracks and he knew how to mythologize. It's all the things that every politician dreams of. Uh, he was good with the media. Uh, and also he kind of played statesman very well. So the bizarre conversion to uh, 
anti-nuclear uh, Nobel Peace Prize candidate uh, in reaching out to Gorbachev, or at least grabbing Gorbachev's hand when Gorbachev reached up to him is, is a look that any aspirational senator would like to have in their fantasy presidency. So I think this, this mixture of things that elevates Reagan and in the United States of amnesia, quoting Gore Vidal, um, these things remain unexamined. But what, what irks me is that they're the mainstream popular historians who know better just fold Reagan in, almost give him a Rooseveltian mantle in a, in a way that is so undeserved. Uh, and uh, it just has gone little remarked upon. So this series is meant to be uh, corrective to that. And I, you do a good job. Yeah, I, you know, he's talked about FDR and Reagan are the two transfor transformational presidents. And Reagan just happened to come along at a time when, uh, to my mind, digitization, computerization meets globalization. And there's an explosion in the ability to outsource uh, production and weaken the American working class. And so it, it, he comes along as becomes the face of that kind of new form of hypercapitalism. Thatcher does it in the UK. In Canada, actually, it's the beginning of begins under Trudeau, but mostly under Mulroney. It's a period. It's a new period of capitalism developing, and Reagan comes along at that time. It's not that he transformed things, but he certainly used his pretty smile to usher it in. Well, uh, as his political Spengali Stu Spencer says in the series, his belief system was resonating in the campaign cycle of 1980. He had tried to uh, be president, uh, well, in 76. Uh, oh, he ran in 68, too. People forget that. So he ran in 68. He'd been governor for, I think, a year. Uh, and before that had been a failed, a faded movie actor and TV actor. Uh, then he ran in 76 and almost unseated Jerry Ford at the convention. And uh, he was thought to be uh, a conservative wingnut. I mean, he he had a fan club because there's always been a kind of like crazy right-wing coalition in the Republican party. Uh, he hugged the John Birch society. He didn't, uh, the Ku Klux Klan was constantly endorsing him. And much like Trump, he pretended that he had forgotten that they did, or, you know, neglected to, uh, disavow. Uh, he had this, his behavior was, uh, very Trumpy. Trumpian or Trump's behavior was very uh, Reagan-like, I guess you could say. But uh, until 1980, when the forces of uh, political economy were uh, coalescing in the way that you outlined a minute ago, uh, he was dismissed. And uh, those beliefs, the uh, anti-New Dealism, uh, the agreed upon agenda of the social welfare safety net was not, it was not palatable to try to overturn these ideas, but eventually his form of uh, crazy, if you will, began to prevail. And he was to a large extent also made possible uh, by uh, McCarthyism, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, if there hadn't been this, this vicious purging and attack on the left and 
not just in terms of people losing their jobs, but the amount of cultural production aimed at scaring the hell out of people, uh, it helped create till the soil for a Reagan kind of politics. Yeah, I mean, the scare politics uh, practiced by the right, they'd purged McCarthy from the party. Really, Eisenhower was largely responsible for that, who was the soul of moderation, um, in, certainly um, in terms of our present. And he's the one that did McCarthy in, ultimately. There were other forces lining up against him. But that type of demagoguery and uh, scare politics, uh, Reagan was very good at practicing. But the, the reason that everyone uh, who was aligned with Reagan thought he was such a master is that he put a smiling face on it. Uh, now, if you look at his 60s persona when he's running for governor, uh, and this surprised me because I hadn't seen a lot of this footage, he's a much harsher, uh, uh, much harsher on, this, on the hustings. Uh, he really kind of lays into people and has a kind of angry, angry man act that he does on occasion. We just made sure that he never got off script. Never responsibility to you. You are a liar. It was our job to protect him, protect him from himself. He winnowed that out of his performance and became more avuncular and more of a kind of smiling optimist. Uh, sunny is the, the adjective that's always applied, but that wasn't always the case. I think he just became smoother and smoother and smoother. Again, he understood his audience. He, that really was, I think, the, uh, the innate uh, talent of Reagan. Yeah, I, I was just watching on YouTube. Uh, I can't remember if this is in your film. I th it might be. Uh, Johnny Carson interviews Reagan. And is that in the film? No, I, I would have uh, loved to use it. It's hard to use Carson footage sometimes. Uh, anyway, he, Reagan, the audience is clearly quite liberal. I guess the Carson show, I'm not sure if it was shot in L.A. or New York, but it's a very liberal audience. And Reagan's there. He's not, you know, he's before he runs for president. And, uh, and he's saying all his, you know, anti-government stuff and the dog whistle stuff, sort of, not as much dog whistle racism, but close. And by the end of it, he has won the audience over. His smile... He's so damn charming. I mean, he could have been saying stuff out of Mein Kampf and uh, that smile might have uh, worked for him. I saw something similar. Uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi's daughter made that film about George Bush on the bus with the reporters. And to watch George Bush win those journalists over with his uh, jokes and ribbing, they, 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 it's a good skill these guys have. Well, yeah, and it's the key. I mean, who's more likable? And it, it manifested in the Obama-Hillary race where Obama, he kind of never lived this down. He said, you're likable enough, Hillary. I mean, that's what he's getting at. It was, it gets boiled down into the, well, I think, astonishingly accurate polling question, uh, who would you rather have a beer with? And uh, W won that hands down in 2000 against Gore, uh, which was an indicator that W might prevail uh, because or Al Gore, no one, no one could even conceive of him drinking a beer. Uh, you know, it's just, that was part of W's charm. The Carson things, the backstory is interesting. Carson's producer, Freddie de Cordova, was a big Republican. 
there was a certain class of Hollywood um, creative or executive that was a Republican. Jack Benny was weirdly a Republican. Uh, Jack Benny. Oh, no. <laughs> you just broke my heart. I love Jack Benny. I think he's probably a liberal. I think they all they all voted for Roosevelt, but they were kind of got a little more Bob Hopish, you know, that that clan. Even Sinatra converted to Republicanism. They just got too rich. <laughs> I think that's what it was. They wanted their taxes cut. And Reagan was yeah. certainly. I mean, they all knew Reagan. They liked him because he was a popular guy around town. Carson was a Carson wasn't that. Carson was a real bleeding heart liberal. He was like a big McGovern voter and friend of Gore Vidal. He was always having Gore Vidal on the show and uh, go stay with Gore Vidal and Ravello. This was that. Those were his politics. I detected that. Uh, Freddie de Cordova said, hey, we need to have Reagan on the show, and Carson was going along with it. If you look at him, he's sort of being tolerant and polite. Oh, he barely argues at all. He lets Reagan get away with it. Well, he was all about making the guests look good. Right. Uh, but Reagan's being very soft there. He's saying, he's talking about, you know, Johnny, this suit of clothes has 29 hidden taxes in it. There's the tax on the thread. There's the tax on the glue and the lining. <laughs> this is the type of, he, he did homilies and they were relatable. They worked. And you know who else did that? Roosevelt did that. Uh, if you read the um, Hopkins and Roosevelt memoir by, um, I'm blanking on the name, Robert Sherwood, who was one of the speechwriters, wonderful book. Uh, Roosevelt, when he's doing the speeches with Sherwood, Harry Hopkins, and Judge Rosenman, he's always sending them back to make it in very plain language. He, need, he wants it to be in the simplest, most relatable language possible. And that's how he gets Lend-Lease across. He, he comes up with this uh, metaphor of the fire hose, the garden hose. If, you're, if your neighbor's house is burning down, you know, would you asked to borrow the fire hose to put the fire out. No, you would borrow, you would steal the fire hose and ask later. And this is how he convinces the American public to follow him into Lend-Lease, which meant following him into World War II. Reagan, Reagan it was an obsessive fan of Roosevelt's radio speeches. So he obviously had that by osmosis. And also one of the cardinal rules of writing a screenplay is, can a caveman understand the exposition? And he was very practiced at reading screenplays and trying to understand how they work because he needed to for his character. So this, this skill set helped him. And this is how he sneaked through. And it's how Trump, in a way, sneaked through. Because the media and the liberal, the limousine liberal class, it's like, these guys are too stupid to be president. They're jokes. But no, they actually understand something uh, from their real experience in entertainment that a lot of people overlook, which is, reading the um, New Yorker article or the foreign affairs article and having a complete understanding of it and being able to host a talk show or a podcast that's super elevated ain't going to get you elected president. I'm, I'm excellent evidence of that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, understanding the way you can get to someone and relate to them is what gets you elected president in the media age. And, and when we talk about Reagan's dog whistle and uh, you know not being as overt some of what he did was pretty overt and t talk about where he goes to announce his run i guess it's his run for presidency you know and, and the state's rights as as part of the code words 
Yes, the, uh, so he gets the nomination in 1980, and um, his first campaign stop is the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi. This is the probably the greatest dog whistle of all time, uh, and it's, it's, it's horrific, really. So Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, backwoods Mississippi is really known for one thing only, and that's where uh, Cheney, Goodwood, and Schwerner were murdered, uh, three civil rights workers who uh, went to, I believe, register voters in uh, that part of Mississippi, and they were abducted by the Klan, uh, murdered, and their bodies were stuffed in an earthen dam and not discovered for some time afterward. Um, Martin Luther King went to uh, march there to protest it. It was, it was a story that gripped the nation. So it was not an obscure moment in the civil rights movement. Philadelphia, Mississippi is very difficult to get to. You have to fly to a kind of small airport and then drive a long way to get to this state fair. But they made it the first campaign stop to really introduce himself as a general election, election candidate to the nation. I believe it might have been Trent Lott, who later became Senate Majority Leader, who issued the invitation to him. He's certainly in the footage when Reagan gets off the plane at the airport. Trent Lott is the, practically pouncing to be the first to shake his hand. And Reagan and Nancy, you see them take the motorcade. You, uh, we got amazing footage of this. They were followed by news helicopters, and you see it from many different angles. They arrive at this uh, fair that's really an almost entirely white audience with Confederate flags waving in the, in the crowd. And Reagan uh, gives the address, and uh, he, at a certain point, uh, says, I believe in states' rights. And uh, there's the literal dog whistle on the stump right there. States yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, explain that for viewers that don't know the history of this. States rights was code because uh, it came to mean after the uh, Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 that um, the Southern states were aggrieved by this because the federal government was telling them what to do. And what that what to do was to allow African-American voters to actually go to the polls and vote. Uh, there were all sorts of impediments to uh, allowing people to exercise their right. The famous one is, you know, a giant jar of jelly beans is on the table at the polling place and you have to guess how many jelly beans are in the jar. And if you can't guess it, you are disqualified. Uh, I, it's just such, such a shameful, it's just, you can't even believe these things existed, although we now have more sophisticated ways of disenfranchising people um, in mostly southern states in this country, which we've heard a lot about in the last year. But that was the, uh, the more analog version of it. And Reagan was just casting his lot with, uh, with that. And, it, you know, Reagan and Goldwater were on the wrong side of the Civil Rights Act. They were openly against the Civil Rights Act. And the Voting Rights Act. And the reasoning they gave was that it was an infringement upon the, uh, the municipalities and the state governments. Reagan would say, oh, you know, I'm a governor and I believe that these things should be handled on the local level. The indignation of uh, Southerners was enormous. 
uh, and Reagan was saying, I'm with you on that. And by showing up at this uh, fair and announcing, or not announcing, but launching the campaign, um, he, he made an impression that helped him probably. And it worked. He, he, he created these Reagan Democrats and, and uh, had an enor enormous victory. Yeah, the Reagan Democrats were a coalition in a way of sub former Southern Democrats who, who liked the rhetoric, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me. I mean, that, that was like music to a Southern Democrat's ear in that period, but also uh, Democrats in the upper Midwest as well. Uh, who became, um, they were, had been kind of like union uh, motivated voters and they began to flip over because he would get to them, if not on, if not on dog whistle racist rhetoric, then on kind of um, sort of lunch bucket issues and social issues, which he deployed very cleverly as well, like uh, abortion. Uh, he really demagogued the issue of abortion. He made he made a pact with the Christian right because that emerged as a political issue. Roe v. Wade, the legalization of abortion on the federal level in this country, I believe, was seventy four. So it was perfectly timed for Reagan's rise as a as a uh, what we now call wedge issue. Are the, is at that time uh, are the is the evangelical church uh, have power and they start is that when they start to coalesce around the Republicans? Uh, emerging in 1980, 7980 was the Falwell emergence. Um, but Reagan, Reagan was a, a sort of a fundamentalist himself. From from he was raised in a kind of revival tent type of church. Uh, his father was Catholic, but his mother was a, even a kind of faith healer, literally. So he kind of has that in his upbringing. He was uh, baptized by full immersion uh, in the Rock River and left the Catholic Church and taught Sunday school. So he, he actually knew, he knew the codes of all of this and he wasn't particularly religious himself, but he, he knew how to talk the talk. And uh, when Falwell started to emerge, uh, he knew what to do. Well, the, you can't even call the parallels with Trump. I mean, it really, the, the Trump campaign was practically modeled. Uh, you made another film called Where's My Roy Cohen? And why don't we end with that? this? Talk a little about how this guy actually literally bridges uh, from McCarthy, and he had an involvement with Reagan, and then uh, to Trump. To yeah, I think... Um so the film's about Cohn, Roy Cohn, who was the mentor to uh, Donald Trump. He was also the kind of Iago to Joseph McCarthy. So he spans the entire history of uh, creepy right-wing politics. He has a real involvement with Reagan as well. He's kind of the right-wing zealot of, uh, of the second half of the 20th century. In Trump, he did, what would have been thought to have been the impossible, except that he did it, which was uh, create a president from beyond the grave because uh, he died in the 80s. Uh, and uh, Trump learned all of his tactics from Cohn, who was uh, really the, even though he was a very young man at the time, he was, I called him the, the Iago to McCarthy. He was kind of uh, also the Spengali to Joe McCarthy 
practice a type of smear politics that uh, really defined the art uh, in that period. So Cohn is actually discredited uh, in the famous Army McCarthy hearings. That's where, I, that's where Eisenhower stuck the knife in because the Army McCarthy hearings, uh, I won't get into the complexities of them, but you can watch the movie and you'll get a very clear explanation of what this very bizarre passage. It almost rivals some of the Trump bizarreness for the, the media circus and the, the, the sick pageantry of it. But Well, I was, I was going to say it also rivals the way Trump took on and went after some of the military. He, you know, he was sycophantic with some generals, but he also sort of attacked sections of the army. And in the end, the army turns on him, I think. But that's another story. Yeah. Well, that was Eisenhower. Uh, that's actually what I was getting at. Eisenhower, of course, was an army general. And uh, part of the less discussed aspects of McCarthy's downfall is that Eisenhower secretly detested him. And then when he went after the army, because there was no smear that was beneath Joe McCarthy or Roy Cohn, uh, Eisenhower's like, we've got to, we're going to, we're going to get rid of this guy. And that, that led to the downfall. And he then, so then Roy Cohn returns to his native New York City and becomes a uh, mob attorney and power broker and fixer. Uh, he kind of, he knew how to fix a judge. He, he becomes really uh, the, the master of dark arts in uh, New York society, that kind of political social mix in New York that used to be called cafe society. And he was the Iago of that. So he survives now for decades and amasses power. And uh, who's he friends with uh, through the 70s and the 80s? The Reagans. Uh, he was a lunching companion of Nancy Reagan. And because he was a political force in, across the country, but specifically in New York, and Reagan needed to win New York uh, or wanted to win New York. And he in fact did win New York uh, because of, largely because of Roy Cohn's help. The other person who, uh, to show you how everything's connected in a terrifying way, who was uh, at Roy Cohn's side was, um, why am I blanking on his name? Roger Stone, sorry, <laughs> momentarily left me. Uh, Roger Stone was the protege of Roy Cohn. Uh, who, and Roger Stone was a, a political operative in uh, the early Reagan campaign. So you can see how all of this starts to connect. And when Reagan's elected, Nancy Reagan actually um, privately attributed uh, Reagan's victory to Roy Cohn, helping him win New York State, I believe in the primary and in the general. There was someone who was in the room when she called Cohn to thank him. And so we had an eyewitness to that. And Roger Stone confirms that a lot of the skullduggery of that campaign was orchestrated by Roy Cohn. And then I'll just a footnote here, leaping ahead to the reelect in 1984, it was Roy Cohn who helped drop the dime on Jerry Ferraro's husband having mob connections, which is completely plausible that that would come from Roy Cohn because he would know all about that. Because <laughs> he did. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, you can see how integral this is. But the, I think the really important part of the Roy Cohn, Ronald Reagan uh, connection is, is two parts that are really super creepy. Uh, one is that it was Cohn who got Rupert Murdoch 
an audience with Reagan and you can see the documents in the Reagan library. He's writing letters to Meese and Baker saying, uh, Rupert Murdoch wants to go see the president. And you can see Baker's writing on it in Mises. They're kind of like passing this letter back like a hot potato. It's like maybe, yeah, okay, whatever, not high priority. But then Cohen, Roy Cohen gets in the Oval Office with Murdoch and what are they there to discuss? They're there to discuss an FCC tweak which will end the regulation that prohibits someone from owning a TV station and a newspaper in the same media market, which allows uh, Murdoch to own the New York Post and a local TV station in the New York metropolitan area, which he then parlays into Fox News. Uh, well, maybe we'll do more of this in the next, because we're going to keep talking. We've, we're really through part two of the series now. Uh, the extent to which this politics of Reagan and the right wing, and, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen to the Democrats too, it's just a little more sophisticated, but the, but the overt criminality, the corruption, and the media never doesn't, simply doesn't go after it. The fact that Reagan can go, do, can, go, can go down in today's narrative and mythology as one of the great presidents, surrounded by corruption and criminality, it's 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 amazing what go back to your United States of amnesia. But the reason people have amnesia is because the media really enforces and creates that culture. Well, they were very good at owning the narrative. Um, I suppose we'll get into Iran Contra in a later episode. But uh, I mean, Iran Contra was like, filled with corruption uh, and, and dereliction of duty. Uh, which are two things that aren't front of mind in the public imagination when you think of Ronald Reagan. But the Reagan administration had uh, probably the most scandals until Trump. Yeah, definitely, I would say, uh, without question. Uh, I mean, per pound, there were enormous scandals. There were very corrupt people put at the heads of cabinet, uh, at the ca cabinet offices, and there were sub-cabinet people who were just plainly corrupt. And Reagan had a very uh, corrosive uh, and a really ma malignant attitude, which was uh, a combination of starve the beast, which is just ignore these agencies, which do little things like, you know, get people their welfare checks or, you know, things that, about government that he either detested or didn't interest him or make environmental regulations, occupational safety which is an organization in this government called OSHA. And he would put purposely put underqualified people at the top of these cabinets or put people whose stated mission before that was to uh, get rid of these parts of the government. And he would, he would sadistically almost put them in the executive role. And Trump did that too. Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, just to name one of many, was, you know, someone who was anti-public education. Um, and that's just, the, you know, one of many of her disqualifying uh, attributes to have headed that uh, cabinet position. And Reagan was kind of the father of that practice. And again, no one, no one credits him or discredits him with that. But it really, it wreaked havoc in the government. It really caused enormous issues. And among those were the uh, burgeoning scandals because a lot of these people weren't fit to serve. Okay, we'll pick this up again in the next segment. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you.
And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Uh, don't forget the donate button.